uh, I am I'm, I'm excited here. I uh, was was a camp counselor. I shared a little bit earlier uh, about that for uh, a few summers, and then my wife Kelly and I had the opportunity to be uh, camp directors for a, a few years early, uh, beginning of our marriage, and I had many. Uh, many nights at camp as a camp counselor sitting with a, with a camper who was homesick. Um, and I remember one specifically when I was early, young, uh, I think I was just a freshman, sophomore in college, and I was uh, at a camp. We hiked out into the woods and spent most of our time far out in the woods. And the first night, usually that was the night, uh, it was scary that first night to be away from home. Um, we're laying in our bunks. And I hear a kid kind of whimpering, crying a little bit. And so, hey, hey, how you doing, man? He's feeling sad. He misses home. His stomach hurts. He has a headache. He's trying to hold it in so he looks tough. He's a, he's a sixth grade boy, so he wants to be tough, but he misses home. And so him and I walk out of the cabin. It's kind of dark, but we sit on a log uh, by the fire that had been going earlier. There's just like embers in there now. And we just start talking. What, what are you feeling? Trying to distract him. I had been trained how to, how to deal with homesickness, just meaning just distract them and hopefully they get tired and fall asleep. Um, and so I sat with him and we talked and tried to distract him and talk about other things, uh, what he likes to do in the summer other than camp and his family. And finally, he just, I just really really want to go home. Can't you just call my mom? And I know where you live. You, you're like hours away and it's the middle of the night and let's just get through tonight. And so in the moment, I didn't know what to say. I said, what, what do you miss about home? Um, and uh, usually this wasn't the thing that uh, we were encouraged to necessarily do because it reminded them of home. Often we'd give them homesick pills, which were actually just Tums. I would get I'd give him a Tums. Hey, this will make you not feel homesick. And sometimes that would work. Um, I heard stories of people using like Benadryl as homesick pills, which I think is maybe against the law, um, you know, because it would make them not allergic to homesickness <laughs> and fall asleep. But I thought, I don't know what to do. It's been like an hour. We're sitting here and I say, tell me about your home. What do you miss? And he missed the same things. I miss because I remember feeling a little homesick myself. He shared about how much he misses his mom and he wants her to tuck him in and say goodnight to him and misses seeing his dad and he wonders what his brother and sister are up to. He misses having breakfast uh, at home and he bets he was sure they had had a really fun night without him. Um, just all the warmth kind of coziness of home, all his things he loved, his favorite meals he shared about, their pet he loved. And in the middle, I was feeling the same, thinking, oh, I kind of miss those things too. I've been spending my summer here at camp and I miss my home for those things that make me part of a family and make me comfortable, uh, bring great joy to me and peace to me. Um. I don't think that, I mean, even the beginning of our service, it's not a foreign feeling uh, for us. But this is a feeling as believers spiritually and in our lives, I think we feel often, even if homesick isn't what you would 
identify it as, you wouldn't say, I'm feeling homesick today. We often feel around us like we're not at home. Hopefully, I would guess you've felt this. And we're in a series right now uh, that we're calling the gospel changes everything. And I think the gospel changes this within us. This is something the gospel brings to us. It actually puts us in a place um, of kind of homesickness right now, where we're at right now. Last week, we looked at what it looked like to be called ambassadors. That when we're reconciled to God, we now become these agents of reconciliation, that we now set up these embassies as the church in, in our world that bring not just the culture of what God has for people, but bring the lives of those people. So we actually get to introduce people to God's family. But if we are ambassadors in, in God's embassies, that means we are also volunteering ourselves to be exiles, to be in a land that isn't our own, to be in a world that isn't our own. And so that comes with a tension of what it looks like to live somewhere that's not home, where things don't feel right. We don't always feel joyful or at peace. We miss the things of our family that we're from. We see broken relationships with people in leadership, in our history, people's lives filled with hurting, people using each other. We're in the middle of pandemics, weeks of elections that might go on still for a while, and even snow in the forecast. Things just aren't right. And so we just don't feel it at home always. Sometimes a lot. The closer we get to Christ, the more we pursue God, the more we might even feel farther from home and more foreign in the place that we are. This isn't new to God's people. And that's what we're going to look at today. How have God's people reacted to being in exile in this tension? And what do we do often when we're in exile? And how do we do this right? Um, Do this the way I think Christ has shown us and Even we see in scripture, different people sharing with us what that looks like. Um, This is in the beginning of our story as God's people. This is from the creation in Genesis to God's people being exiled from the garden quickly within a chapter or two of it, right? Turning from God and being put away from his garden. And then for a long, long time, God's people are away from God. In fact, they are their own nation. God is with them and they continue to turn from God. And at a point, God actually puts them in exile, sends them to Babylon, which throughout scripture is this actual place. And then just this symbol, the word Babylon is the word for just not God's place and not God's people. And so people get turned from God, put into Babylon The people there take God's people and hope that they kind of can just assimilate into their culture or maybe just form their own little pockets. And there's three things people often do that we're going to look at today if they're in exile, right? Or if they're kind of away, if they're put into a place that isn't home. Generally, there's three ways we react to that. The first is that we would hide. And so God's people could just hide. They could just form their own little bunkers, In the church, we can just form our own little churches and we hide from the culture and the people around us and just wait. We're maybe just fearful. 
And so we just hide and don't engage. That's all bad and we need to hide. The second one that often can happen is that we fight back. We, we set up a war with the culture that we've been moved into, this temporary kind of uh, place we're in that's not home, and we just want to fight it and maybe even hope that we can fight it, push it back, and just make it into our own culture. Not wanting to go back home, but just fighting this, setting up a war. And thirdly, we, um, third, I don't know if third leads a word. Third, we often can just blend in. We just actually just embrace the culture. We say, you know what? This is my new home. And I maybe will not go back home, or maybe this is even a better home. And so we just embrace the culture. And so these are these are three ways we see throughout history God's people have done that when they are put in exile away from, from their home. And we, we see this play out in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is talking to the exiles, God's people who've been moved to Babylon. And uh, throughout their time, they actually have these false prophets that come out and say, uh, kind of encourage them to do those things, to hide or to fight or to blend in. And one of the prophets comes out and says uh, that they're not going to be there long, that God told me you're just going to be here a little while. So just kind of hide and hold on. And then God will get us back home because he's never going to just leave us here for a long time. And then Jeremiah, a true prophet of God, comes. And this is where we start uh, our walk through scripture today. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to start in Jeremiah 29. Otherwise, all the words will be right here on the screen. Um, look, what it look, see what it looks like to be God's people in exile. And this, this model that's set up throughout scripture of what God's people look like in exile, hopefully encouraging us in what we too can do as we're exiles. So we start here in Jeremiah 29. This is right after these other prophets have said, we're going to be here a little bit, just hold on, either assimilate in their culture, just blend in, just become Babylonians or hide from them or fight them. He says this, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Can you imagine this, how excited these, these people are um, going to be? God's going to tell us. He says, hide, fight, or blend in. Nope. He says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. What does God say here? Does he say, hide from the people and start your own commune? Nope. Does he say, fight, fight with them and push back? There are your enemies. You've been planted in enemy territory. No. And does he say, just become them? Worship their gods, follow their all their traditions. No, but he does say, I've put you there. And so settle in. Build things. Build homes. Plant gardens. I love this. He even says, plant gardens and then eat what they produce, meaning you're going to go through a whole season. You're going to plant things and harvest them and consume them. Meaning you're going to be there for a while. Raise your kids. Marry them off. Build your families. See your grandkids grow up here. And seek the prosperity and peace of the city I brought you to. And 
even pray for it. Are you seek the Lord for it? Because when these people prosper, you too will prosper. Your flourishing is tied to the place that you're put in. This could have been, for some, really surprising. Why would God have us do this with these pagans, right? Or these people who do not worship our God. Why would he have us here so long? This sounds like we're going to be here for a while. It's a, it's a great moment to stop and consider that God has brought you to the place that you're sitting today, wherever you are right now, wherever they were right then, God has brought you there. It's not your home with capital H, but it's kind of your temporary lowercase H home. God has put us here not by mistake, and we can settle in. We don't have to look to it as our new home, capital H, but it is the place God has put us. And as people in God's family, as soldiers in God's army, as members of the kingdom of God, citizens of heaven, we get to bring flourishing and life to our cities. What better people to bring joy and peace and flourishing than the people of the creator? So this seems like great. Let's just go do good things and live lives here. And then maybe someday we'll go home. Well, Jeremiah continues on and there's a lot more scripture that helps even play this out more because if we're not careful, we could just think we should do good things for the people around us. And our mission and purpose is to just make the city we're in better. Yes, and always first, remember, we start with God. And so in Jeremiah, right after this, he continues on to talk to the people and give more instruction to the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, that's a long time, multiple generations. I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me. And I'll listen to you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with, your, with all of your heart. I will, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God reminds us that our primary first foundational move is to be is towards him to listen to listen for him to pray to him to seek him and we will find him and he'll be there for us and we will give him our whole hearts and out of that we will we will eventually be home right that he's not just putting us in this place and saying well just be there and settle down he's saying be there for a time and bless these people and then I will come and bring you home. So there's this waiting, this exile that we're in. These people were in, and I think we still are in. And it's balanced by the seeking of the Lord and also then seeking the welfare of the people. And, and not just one of there. We can get those mixed up, right? We, we could forget one of those. But first we need to remember that. And I've been using this over and over because I love this. Um, I think it's so helpful for me visually. 
There's this seeking of the Lord with all of our heart, and he has plans for us that we can trust those, and there's an overflowing of that. And so this is what he's saying. This isn't, this isn't different than anything else he's been telling us through Scripture. All the way back from the beginning in the garden, right, this creation mandate that God says, I'm going to bless you, right? You call upon me, and I will come to you. I will bless you. And then out of that, you're going to be a blessing. If he was to bless us and then we just hid or we use that blessing to fight off people or we use that blessing, we pushed it away and just embraced the blessings of the world around us, we would not be doing what God calls us to do. And again, he's just reminding them, even when you're in exile, you still are overflowing who I am and what I am to those people. And so... We get to remember that our salvation, our rescue, our family, our identity, our home is with God. And out of that, then wherever God puts us, we aren't necessarily in our final home with God, but where we are now, we can be a blessing to those around us. Now, God's people um, eventually do, hundreds of years later, find themselves in Jerusalem not in Babylon. They find themselves back in the lands that they would have called home. Maybe physically they've come out of exile, but they are still spiritually far from God. Still exiles in a world that they have created. But God takes care of his people and puts an end to all of it forever. God brings his people Home, Jesus comes to earth, leaving his home and becoming an exile, a foreigner. He builds plants and seeks the welfare uh, of, his man, of mankind for all people of all time. He does not hide from the world. He fights for the world. He certainly does not blend in to the world. People notice him because he doesn't fit the mold of the world. He heals, casts out evil. He's arrested and killed for being famous for calling himself God and his deep connection with the Father. Jesus then becomes the ultimate exile on a cross. Think about it. He he gets separated from the Father so that we would no longer be exiles. That's incredible. If you just woke up each morning and said, Jesus became an exile so that I would not be one, we change our days. He makes a home for us when we put our faith in him. Jesus is raised from the dead, defeating death and sin and Satan. We now have an eternal, permanent home. We are eternally and permanently prospering because Jesus prospered. Do you see this? He is doing what Israel couldn't do. But even when I put my faith in Jesus, today, in 2020, I still feel homesick because I'm not home. Jesus has made a way for me to be home. I have a family. In fact, I think the more I understand the gospel the more it changes me, the more I become homesick. Just wishing I could be in that home. And we still find ourselves in a broken world, a Babylon that seeks self-focused lives. 
We live as exiles, citizens of heaven, people of God's kingdom, but in a different land. And you know what? In the New Testament, after we read the Gospels, we hear uh, we can read a letter of Peter's who followed Jesus. He's one of Jesus' disciples, wrote a letter to churches in Asia Minor. He wrote a letter to these churches encouraging them because they were feeling the same thing. In fact, he writes a letter that sounds a lot like Peter's version of Jeremiah 29. Let's listen to what he says to us. This is These are people who are following Jesus. He says, dear friends, let me find this for all of us here. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Yeah, what do I do? To abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You hear where the war is? It's, it's on our souls. It's a spiritual war. Not with these other people, but this spiritual war. Live such good lives. Listen to this. This is incredible. Live such good lives among the pagans that they accuse you of doing wrong. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you hear that? Even if they're offended by the gospel, even if they say, whoa, you're calling us sinners. The gospel calls us to repent and turn to God. The gospel says some of these things that we're following, these, these desires of our flesh and our heart aren't okay. You're telling me I need help? I need a... God to help me, that, that might be offensive, but how good we are to them, the, the amount we seek the welfare of those around us will actually cause them to glorify God. That's incredible. There's a, there's a point to this. And then he goes on, he says, well, this is what it looks like. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of the foolish people. Our, our good, the seeking of welfare, this overflowing of the gospel, actually will, will shut the mouths of foolish talk. It'll actually bring people to Jesus and change people. Live as free people. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. I love this last phrase. If we live lives that are, that are so good that, that we're loving and serving these people around us, because it's an overflow of the gospel. First, we've come to Christ, and now we overflow that. People will, out of that, come to know Jesus. And then he says, if you're not sure, here, here's a few phrases. Show proper respect to everyone. Respect the people around you. You're not in a fight with them. Respect them. They're image bearers of God. Love the family of believers. Connect. Be part of a church and love these people well. Bear with them well. Fear God or worship God and honor the emperor. These are the words that help me think through how do I do this? How do I live in this tension? I worship God. My loyalty is to him. My worship is to him. My identity comes from God. And I get to honor those around me. I get to seek the welfare of the people around me. What a week to read this passage, right? We are in a moment where 
we have an election. It seems that we have a president that's been elected, but we are recounting votes and we're seeing people post very strong feelings, right? Whether they're heartbroken over what's happened and scared or they're thrilled and they're celebrating. Their hope is, they're excited because now they're hopeful this person could save us or they're terrified this person will destroy us in all of that. We get to still love or respect those people and in the way we care for them, out of our love for Jesus and then overflow, we get to possibly help people turn to God and find hope. So what does this look like? Um, well, I, I think of it, it's a cool week to be thinking about this, this tension that we're living in of loyalty to our home, to our family, our heavenly family, but also we're in a place that we're not just going to hide or fight with them or just say, okay, I'll just embrace it and this will be my new home. And this is a week where we also celebrate in U.S. history something really cool, a, a hero in our house, which I've mentioned probably before, maybe a few times because we just love um, this woman. Um, 60 years ago this week on November 14th, Ruby Bridges walked into her new school. Now, you, you maybe know the story of Ruby Bridges. She's Fantastic. Ruby Bridges is about the same age as my mom. And so just in 1960, not that long ago, this girl was six years old and she walked into her new school. Why was this significant? Because she was a black girl walking into what was an all white school. Because her schools were being desegregated. Now they were allowing black and white children to go to school together. But when she walked into this school, no one was there. Because everybody said, I don't want to be in this school with this girl. In fact, when she walked in school every day, there were crowds outside yelling at her, screaming terrible things at her, telling her she wasn't wanted, she wasn't loved, that this wasn't right. Could you imagine? I can't imagine what I would feel as an adult. And she's a six-year-old girl walking into a school to be educated, to be cared for. And these people are yelling and screaming. In fact, if you notice in this photo, um, there's police officers had to escort her. In fact, uh, federal agents had to escort her into school to help protect her, keep her safe each day as this happened. And then over time, uh, kids started coming with her. But what a moment in our history. Um, she could have easily, if I had been there, I would have wanted to hide. I would have just wanted to run home. One day of that, I would have stayed home and hidden from it. Or she could have fought, right? I would have maybe wanted to yell back or tell these officers to do something, defend her, at least scream back at them or throw a pencil or my backpack at them. I wanted to fight, right? If I wasn't going to hide from this, I would fight it. Or you know what? You could just say, I guess this is just how it is. I guess this shouldn't happen. Let's segregate schools again. I'll just go back to my other school. It's interesting, right? There's those reactions we could have in that moment. But she continued each day to go into the school. Now, this is a similar thing that we see in the church. Historically, 
as we've um, the church has interacted specifically on this topic of injustice, especially with brothers and sisters of color, the church has chosen at times to hide or to fight or just to blend in. We've chosen to hide and not deal with the issue, to say we'll just pray and preach the gospel and let people's hearts change, but I'm going to stay away from this one, especially when we're people who don't have to necessarily deal with the issue if it isn't happening to us because we aren't a person of color, right? Maybe I'm going to ignore the welfare of people because of the cost that it would cost me, so I would maybe hide. Or historically, we have found ourselves fighting when we're feeling in this exile moment. We feel ourselves fighting. We're just saying, fighting even with those others who are trying to bring justice to communities. We find historically a church saying other Christians are maybe false teachers or even not believers because of their focus on social justice. We're refusing to even work with organizations because they don't closely align with us theologically. We become in battles amongst ourselves instead of thinking about how we can seek the welfare of our city. We like sometimes to call names, demonize people, or even pray for the destruction of other image bearers. So either we hide or we fight, or you know what, friends, we often just find ourselves blending into setting aside the gospel and the work of God and saying, okay, that's like a Sunday thing, and then the rest of my time is this thing. And so we find ourselves seeking the welfare, but not out of an overflow of the gospel, but because it's the thing people are doing. Not because of our identity and purpose to bring equality to those and bring justice to people, because it's the pressure we feel. We may blend into parts of our culture. And sometimes when we blend in, we become people who just demonize those who hide or fight. We forget the Imago Dei or the image of God in all people. And so now we just see the people who are causing injustice as less than human as we fight for justice for for those who have been hurt. We become quick to label, assign a level of racism to people, or even we find our identity and how much anti-racism we're fighting for and not in our God. Or you know what? We might find our purpose and mission identity flowing from a worship of our country and not our God. So we become people who just assume the mission or mantras of the world around us. And this is real easy to do. It's hard work to be exiles. Now, Ruby's story is incredible. I encourage you to, to, to read this week with it. If you have kids, there's some great books, or even just to read the stories. It's, she's been a joy to remember each year. And um, But there's a moment in her story where I think she gives us a little bit of example of what to do. Ruby grew up in a house that loved Jesus, and that that really was a foundation for her. And so there's a moment in her story that um, that I think is really cool to hear as we kind of wrap up our time here. Um, Ruby would walk into school each day around this crowd. They'd be yelling and screaming. And she would pause a lot of days before she'd walk in the building. And so she would stand uh, maybe on the steps of the school right before she'd walk in. And so her teacher asked her, why are you stopping to pause? Are you stopping to take a moment because you're contemplating maybe leaving? That's what I would be feeling, maybe leaving. 
Or maybe you're trying to think of something great to yell back at them. Maybe you've just given up and you just have a moment you're like, it's not worth, not worth it. I'll just give in and blend in. This is amazing. This six-year-old girl, the wisdom and the gospel that's in her, she said, no, I stopped to pray for these people, that God would change them. She's praying for the people in the land where God placed her. Now, I'm not as strong as a sixth grade girl in 1960. Um, I find myself hiding and fighting and blending in. And as we move towards a time of communion, I want us to consider why um, why we do this. And I, I think in the end, it's because the gospel isn't changing us. And so here's a few things I think happens. I think we forget that Jesus defeated sin and death and Satan, all of the biggest enemies and the scariest things in our lives. And so we become fearful of things around us, forgetting that Jesus has already taken care of those things. And so then fear is what motivates us to fight or hide or blend in. We think we see enemies all around us to fight rather than seeing already defeated principalities and enemies. We also forget not only that God, that Jesus defeated those, we forget that Jesus loves us dearly and that he loves those people who God's placed us with dearly. And so we stop seeking the love for those people because we forget that we are already loved by Jesus. And maybe we even seek the love of people around us. And so it causes us to want to just blend in and forget our home. And that's the last one. I think we forget that we have a home. The pain of homesickness gets old and gets tiring and it's hard to endure. And so we just look for something else that might become our home, even if it's not even close to how good our home is. And so how quick we are to forget our home. Let's remember our home. We actually get a little view into our home. God actually comes to John, one of the disciples, a good friend of Peter's, and he gives him a vision and says, I want you to see what home one day will look like. So John writes this down. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, he shares a little bit of what that home looks like. He says, I saw the holy city, this new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. How good is that home sound? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. To those who are victorious, will inherit all this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. We have a home where things are made right. When we remember that, we remember that Jesus loved us so much he would die for us and that he defeated sin and Satan and death. It changes us. We don't feel like we need to hide or fight or just blend into this temporary lowercase home 
age home. We can remember that we are called and given a home in heaven with God, and that as we are here, um, we can be those who seek the welfare of our uh, of the place God has placed us. And we must remember Jesus in the gospel if we're going to be people who live in exile well and joyfully and peacefully. <laughs>